If someone came up to you right now and asked you, why do you believe that the Bible is true? Uh, would you be able to give a substantive and a compelling answer? Probably the worst answer that you could give is, well, I'm not really sure. I, I just believe it. I, I just have faith. Which would imply that your faith is unsubstantiated. Another really bad answer would be, well, I, I grew up in the church and it's what I've always believed. A good answer gives people a compelling reason to believe, a reason anchored in truth, a reason anchored in reality. Are you able to defend your faith with evidence, with logic, and with reason? If you can't, there's good news for you. There are things available, resources available, people available to help you if you want to mature in this area. As a, as a follower of Jesus, you, I, we must have answers to why we believe in Christ. Christian apologist and theologian Dr. William Lane Craig believes Christians are often views, viewed as, quote, emotional fanatics or buffoons because they can't defend their faith. But if they could, maybe unbelievers would see them as, quote, thoughtful people to be taken seriously. Uh, which ultimately means that more unbelievers would take God seriously, perhaps. Is each of us ready uh, to verbally defend the gospel in a compelling way? Um, apologia is the Greek word for giving a verbal defense to refute an accusation of falsehood. Here's an example. If someone uh, says that I am not married... Here is my verbal defense. Let me introduce you to Christina, my wife, and our children. Notice the rings. Here are a few names of the people that came to our wedding and were eyewitnesses. Here's our marriage certificate. Here's some uh, video footage of our ceremony and our reception. I'm defending with evidence what I know to be absolutely true. Christian apologetics, therefore, is giving a compelling and evidential verbal defense of gospel truth. Uh, and I want to help you have a good defense to give. I, I want to be the kind of pastor that trains you, that equips you to have something compelling to say when your moment comes. And I hope it comes often. Uh, John 18, 12 through 27 can help us make a defense but we can't just stop after the sermon is done and say that's it. No, God is calling you, dear brother, dear sister, to research, to study, to, to grow in having a defense to give. Now, I want you to keep in mind as we cover this that next week we're going to deal with Peter's denial. So we're not going to deal with that part of the text this morning. Background of the book of John. John, the author of this book, was a personal friend of Jesus Christ. Along with Peter and James, he was one of the three disciples out of the 12 that were closest to Jesus. And he wrote uh, from personal experience. Uh, his purpose in writing the book of John was to present detailed and credible evidence so that his readers would believe in Jesus Christ, would believe that he is God, and that they would believe and be saved. And so John defends in his book. John pleads in his book in order to overcome disbelief in people's hearts. John wrote history. He wrote history that had radically changed him. Some people say John never existed. 
Well, consider this. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna, famous for being martyred in A.D. 156 at the age, get this, of 86 because he would not renounce Christ. Awesome. It is believed that Polycarp associated with the apostle John along with Andrew and Philip. John taught Polycarp and Polycarp taught uh, Irenaeus. Here's what Irenaeus wrote. I remember the events of those days more clearly than those which have happened recently. For what we learn as children grows up with the soul and becomes united to it. So I can speak even of the place in which the blessed Polycarp sat and disputed how he came in and went out, the character of his life, the appearance of his body, the discourse which he made to the people, how he reported his converse with John and with the others who had seen the Lord, how he remembered their words and what were the things concerning the Lord which he had heard from them, including his miracles and his teaching and how Polycarp had received from them, uh, received them from the eyewitnesses of the word of life and reported all things in agreement with the scriptures, end of quote. And Irenaeus also wrote this, John, the disciple of the Lord, who leaned back on his breast, published the gospel while he was resident at Ephesus in Asia. This was a man who uh, sat under Polycarp, who sat under John, who sat under Jesus, all within the span of less than 130 years. This is wonderful evidence, apologetic number one. We can read eyewitness accounts of Jesus from people who saw him alive after the resurrection. John, Matthew, Peter, Paul, even Jesus' half-brother who became a believer, James. Let me add this. John wrote this book between 70 and 100 A.D., which is within 67 years of the crucifixion maybe as little as 47 years within the crucifixion. History books written that close to the actual events are very, very hard to refute. That would be like someone writing a biography about Dwight D. Eisenhower, who died 47 years ago. His grandson, author and professor at the University of Pennsylvania, David Eisenhower, is still alive. And he knew his grandfather, President Eisenhower, this I found was interesting, actually named Camp David after David, who, his grandson and his father, uh, who are teaching, who's teaching at UPenn, the grandson. Many of you were alive when Eisenhower was president. Some of you may have seen him in person. I don't know. Um, if the biography of Eisenhower included far-fetched stories today, it would be easily refuted by many people and it would be laughed at in 2016. Apologetic number two, we can read books about Jesus written within a few years of Jesus' life, which could have been substantiated by many people at the time of publication. Understand what you're reading when you open the Bible. You're reading an eyewitness account from a personal friend of Jesus. You're reading words from a man who was with Jesus the last night of his life before the crucifixion, including Gethsemane, and words written less than 70 years after Jesus was crucified. And other New Testament books were written within 10 or 15 years of Jesus' life. So let's head into John 18. Jesus was arrested. Verse 12 says, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Those details tie the arrest of Jesus to two historically verifiable entities 
Rome, and Judaism. There were likely hundreds of men from both Rome and Judaism involved in this arrest. First century uh, Jewish historian Josephus wrote this, quote, and when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross. Josephus was a Jew, writing in the first century. The principal men amongst us correlates with verse 12. Apologetic number three, many people, not just a few, many people participated in and witnessed the arrest of Jesus Christ. Apologetic number four, the arrest of Jesus is reasonably linked to two verifiable entities of the first century, Rome and Judaism. Think about it. Jesus was a very, very popular man. He had a lot of followers. There was a lot of buzz in Jerusalem around uh, Jesus Christ. And so he was a threatening figure to Rome. He was a threatening figure to Judaism in and of itself. Of course they wanted him arrested. Of course they wanted to bring him down. So what happened next? Well, Jesus was taken to Annas, the former high priest. Verse 13, first they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. This is history, historical fact. The most likely year of, of Jesus Christ's crucifixion was 33 AD. This was during the high priesthood of Caiaphas. So why take Jesus to Annas and not Caiaphas, who was the high priest? Okay, first let's understand a little bit about the office of high priest. High priests were powerful men. There was one official high priest at a time, and he was the utmost religious figure of the temple rituals, the only priest that could enter into the holy place, and and then he was only allowed to enter one year on the Day of Atonement. He presided over the Sanhedrin, a major, powerful body of men, which was the highest judiciary court in Jerusalem. So he presided over the leading aristocrats of the day of Jewish society. Serving beneath the high priest were the chief priests, the treasurer, even around 7,200 common priests and 9,600 Levites. The high priest was the most powerful and distinguished man in all of Judaism. And in the first century, he was appointed by Roman uh, procurators. Now, after a man served as high priest, he still possessed influence and power within Judaism and seemed to retain the title of high priest even after he he was finished, much like the former presidents of the United States of America. Now, we have how many? Five. Am I right on that? Five of presidents still living, and they're all referred to as what? Mr. President, Mr. President, even though four of them no longer serve as president, and I want you to keep that in mind. Who was Annas? Well, there were essentially three wealthy families that controlled the office of the high priest, and Annas was the patriarch of one of those families. He was appointed high priest by the Roman governor Quirinius, which should ring a bell, Luke 2, Christmas story, and served as high priest from A.D. 6 through 15. In A.D. 15, Annas was deposed from the high priesthood by the Roman prefect Valerius Gratus, Pilate's predecessor, who also later appointed Caiaphas as high priest. After Annas was deposed, five of his sons, his dynasty, and his son-in-law Caiaphas served as high priest. So though Annas was no longer the high priest, you can see where this is going. He still had influence through his family members who were were high priest. 
He, he was a, a considerably powerful man, and some even thought him to be the true high priest. Considerable influence over the office. Luke 3, 2 confirms that he had influence. It says, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. So that shows that they both had power, yet Caiaphas was the high priest. Acts 4, 5, and 6 adds, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. So understand what's happening here. Caiaphas was the high priest. He was the one with the official title. He served from A.D. 18 to 36. But Annas is still mentioned as high priest because of his ongoing influence. So that's why they took Jesus to Annas first. Scholar William Hendrickson had a helpful note. He said, Thus during the entire period of Christ's ministry, and for a long time afterward, Annas was the man who was responsible to a large extent for the actions of the Jewish Sanhedrin. That makes him really powerful. Uh, Hendrickson continues, someone else might be the presiding officer of the Sanhedrin. Annas was the man to consult. One can imagine how whenever a priest would come up with a plan or idea and would broach it, another would immediately reply, have you cleared this with Annas? End quote. So you can see that Annas had significant influence. According to historical sources, Annas was arrogant, he was ambitious, he was avaricious, and he was affluent. In his book, Jewish War, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, mentioned a monument of Annas. And archaeologists believe they found Annas' tomb in the Kidron Valley. And if you remember the Kidron Valley, Jesus went across the brook of Kidron to get into the Garden of Gethsemane. So they think they found uh, uh, this tomb of Annas. Apologetic number five. The details of Jesus' arrest line up with the appropriate leaders in power at the time in the first century. There are a few other noteworthy details as we consider this trial and understand what's happening here in John 18 and beyond. Neither Annas nor Caiaphas had the authority to issue the death penalty. Only Rome had the power to do that, hence Pilate's later involvement. Also, Jesus was accused of blasphemy. And according to Roman law, blasphemy was not a crime. This spectacle was in the middle of the night. And one scholar said that normally trying someone in the middle of the night was, quote, doubtless viewed as illegal. So from the very beginning, everything smelled funny about this situation with the arrest of Jesus. So Annas questioned Jesus about two things. He questioned him about his disciples and he questioned him about doctrine. There's a potential problem with this interrogation. In a formal Jewish trial, the judge questioned witnesses, not the accused. So if there were witnesses and all of their testimonies lined up, case closed, we're done with this, we can convict this guy, but the accused didn't have to actually prove his innocence. But Annas was grilling Jesus, the accused. There's a problem with this. So watch what happened, verses 20 through 21. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. So what was Jesus doing? He was saying, you should be questioning witnesses, not me. All right, the teaching ministry of Jesus 
went public to Jews and even some Gentiles. He, he wasn't whispering in corners here and there, planning seditious plots against Rome or against Judaism. He, he taught plainly in the synagogues. He taught plainly in the temple. His public uh, preaching was consistent with his private teaching in times with his disciples. His doctrine wasn't a surprise. People knew what he believed and what he was saying. In fact, many of the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, priests, and Levites had all heard what Jesus had taught. They were all witnesses. Even Annas himself could have heard Jesus teach in the temple. Maybe Annas saw his questioning as some sort of pre-trial before the real trial came, but Jesus was, was no doubt asking for a trial and asking for a fair trial complete with witnesses who had something right to say. He wanted testimony to be heard. Why was Annas interrogating Jesus? Well, some people believe that they were trying to get Jesus to admit his own guilt, his own culpability in all of this. Um, Maybe he was trying to trip Jesus up, but no doubt his interest was in doctrine. And I want you just to think about that. Ideas are powerful things. They move people to action. And maybe these ideas being taught with Jesus had the power to bring down even Judaism. Jesus was so clever, calculated, controlled, and courageous Jesus' response to Annas was calling his questioning into question. This is the former high priest, probably one of two most powerful and influential men in all of Judaism. And he's calling him into question. Jesus was as fearless as he was truthful. Amazing. Well, then the violence began. An officer of the Sanhedrin who was standing by heard what Jesus said, and he made the connection. He knew what Jesus was getting at, and so he slapped Jesus across the face, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? You see, he knew what Jesus was getting at, that Annas had no witnesses, that Annas was not in line here, that he was out of line, and maybe this was the officer's moment to showcase his loyalty to the former high priest. Maybe there was something going on in his heart that he wanted to win some points with this powerful man, so he slaps Jesus across the face, something that was completely out of order. And notice Annas didn't even seem to say anything. Didn't even seem to correct the officer. Well, did Jesus defend himself? He actually did. He told the truth when it was necessary. Think about it. When the sting of the slap was still on his face, Jesus appealed again for any credible witnesses. He said to the officer, verse 23, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Why are you hitting me If what I'm saying is the truth, test it, judge it, be critical of it. But if I'm telling you the truth, why are you hitting me? Nothing at all had been credibly established against Jesus. This slap was angry. It was selfish. It was envious. If Jesus was wrong or if he had incorrectly um, assessed something of the situation, why not bear witness against what he said? Why not bear witness of his error instead of slapping him? But if he was right, if what he said was appropriate, which it was, the slap was completely out of, out of line. And at this moment, we have to remember, Jesus is in control here. We are watching Jesus willingly lay down his life for sinners, 
Apologetic number six, Jesus was a rabbi who taught publicly in the religious centers of the day. Jesus was part of mainstream Judean culture. His, his teaching wasn't obscure. It wasn't secretive. It wasn't off in the corner. In other words, what he taught could have been verified by thousands in and around Palestine. Well, after this calloused interrogation of Annas, the former high priest, Jesus was also sent to Caiaphas, the current high priest. Verse 24 says, Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Again, these are reasonable um, these are reasonable details. These are reason, this is reasonable history that is anchoring the gospel in John to reality, to history, to what actually happened. Caiaphas was indeed the high priest during 33 AD, which is when this arrest took place. Now, if Jesus was going to be executed, the high priest, along with the Sanhedrin, needed to determine, excuse me, uh, his guilt by a trial. And so taking Jesus to Caiaphas was the expedient thing to do in the, in the process. Apologetic number seven. A trial before the high priest and Sanhedrin was accepted under first century Jewish law. That's not to say it was fair. That's not to say it was conducted at the right time. But it was common. Rome gave the Sanhedrin some power. They had limited power. Uh, to try their own cases, and if they wanted to present Jesus to Pilate, the Sanhedrin needed to convict Jesus first. Well, who was Caiaphas? Matthew 26, 3 and 4 tells, uh, tell us about this uh, event, this one event, days before the Passover. It says this, The chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. So we know Caiaphas is the high priest historically. We know they're plotting his, his death beforehand. Matthew 26, 57 records that Jesus was led to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. Caiaphas's run as the high priest was the longest of any high priest uh, in the first century. 18 years, that was long. He was appointed the high priest by Roman prefect Valerius Gratus and served as the high priest during the ministry of Jesus, and if you think about it, throughout all of this uh, scheming against Jesus, all of these death plots against Jesus, he's in power. An interesting fact, back in 1990, an ornate ossuary, which is a bone box that you put bones in, um, was found south of Jerusalem with the rough inscription of, quote, Joseph Caiaphas on the side, uh, which are likely the high priest's bones. We have every reason to believe that the testimony of John is historically accurate. Look at what verse 14 said about Caiaphas. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Well, that's a direct reference back to John 11, 49 through 52. I preached on that a, a while ago. The chief priests and Pharisees in Sanhedrin were convinced. If you look back, they were convinced that the miracle that Jesus did was true. They didn't even try to like overcome the miracle. They believed it. And they feared that the Jewish people would follow Jesus and the Romans would overpower the Jews and they would lose their prominence and their power within this system. And so here's what Caiaphas said to the other Jews. You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. 
And then John writes, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So what Caiaphas basically meant was we got to take down Jesus to preserve this. We have to kill him, get him out of the way, and that preserves our whole system here. Our power, our prominence, get Jesus out of the way, and Judaism remains. So if you, if you look back historically, this was a ruthless statement from Caiaphas. But beautifully, it had a double meaning. It served as a prophecy for the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross. Caiaphas said the gospel and Caiaphas didn't even know it. He, he, he would be instrumental in sending Jesus to the cross, yet that very sentence of his would serve to redeem God's people. One man would die in the place of God's people so that none of them would perish. And it's ironic that the man who helped kill Jesus uttered one of the most precious prophecies to the people who believe in Jesus Christ. We live because he died in our place. That's what Caiaphas was saying. He didn't even know. Apologetic number eight. The people, places, time frames, and Judaism described in John all align with verified history. You can visit Jerusalem today and visit these places that are being talked about. You can see ancient artifacts validating people and religious practices and first century life. Sources outside the Bible Validate facts recorded by John. This adds validity to our faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, the Bible is supreme. Yes, the Bible is all we need. But yes, there are many other sources that talk about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to compare this to Mormonism for a moment. There are over 15 million Mormons in the world. Okay? people who actually believe in the Book of Mormon. Their their lives are altered from the truth of what's in the Book of Mormon. Yet in 1998, Julie Crane, a research correspondent from the National Geographic Society, sent a letter to Luke Wilson from the Institute for Religious Research and stated this, quote, Joseph Smith's narration is not generally taken as a scientific source for the history of the Americas. Archaeologists and other scholars have long probed the hemisphere's past, and the society does not know of anything found so far that has substantiated the Book of Mormon. The Smithsonian even recognized that there is no archaeological evidence for the claims of the Book of Mormon, yet millions of people believe in Mormonism. Do you see where... The connection that I'm making here, this doesn't prove the reliability of the Bible at all. It doesn't end the case or the discussion. But it does say that believing John's eyewitness account, along with the rest of the Bible, is logical. And it is supported archaeologically, geographically, anthropologically, religiously, and even, yes, scientifically. Let's finish up with verses 15, 16. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that Jesus was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, 
who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Here's one of the things that this was saying. The disciples of Jesus experienced these events. After Peter cut off Malchus's ear, not really a smart move with all those swords around, and uh, after Jesus saved his skin, and after the disciples ran, Peter somehow didn't go very far. Matthew 26, verse 58 says, And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. John tells us that another disciple followed Jesus too. Now, we don't know who this other disciple was, uh, but many scholars believe that it was John, and there's good reason to think that it was John. One reason is that John never refers to himself by name in his gospel. Okay, And so he refers to himself as, instead, the disciple whom Jesus loved. So it was probably Peter and John who tracked Jesus the whole way to Caiaphas' house. According to verse 16, John apparently knew Caiaphas and had somewhat of a close relationship with him. The Greek word for known is gnostos, meaning that he was an acquaintance. And it might even mean that he was a friend. A close friend. So however close they were, we don't know, Caiaphas knew John well enough that he was admitted. And John was recognized enough by this servant girl at the front that she had the authority to let him, him in. And not only that, but for John to bring a friend in and Peter got in based on the relationship John had. Okay, so apologetic number nine. We read about these events from people who experience the events. Matthew and John were two of the 12 chosen disciples. They wrote about what they experienced. John, Matthew, and Peter were there when Jesus was arrested. John and Peter were there when Jesus was taken to Annas and Caiaphas. Mark wasn't one of the 12 disciples, though it's possible that he was the young man who ran away naked in Mark 14. It's a very odd verse in Mark 14, and we'll put a smile on your face. Look it up. Uh, nudity in Mark. That's a headline that'll captivate people's interest. All right, but, but he was the attendant, and he was a writer for Peter who passed on his account to Mark who wrote it, who wrote it down. So it was authenticated by an apostle, apostolic witness. The point is, the writing of the New Testament was done by men who experienced Jesus Matthew and John and Peter were with Jesus during his public ministry, during the Last Supper, during the Gethsemane prayer, or you could call it nap time, and arrest, and during events following his arrest. They experienced these events firsthand. Now make the connection with today. There are many people who discredit the gospel accounts. They just don't believe them. They'll attach different authors. They'll attach them to different time periods. All right, they date, they, they date it differently. And so obviously there is debate ongoing today about the reliability of the New Testament. But we must realize that we have incredible evidence from early sources and scholarship that gives us excellent reasons to believe in what John and the other New Testament writers were recording. There is no good reason, none, to reject what we know and realize that those who reject the accounts of Christ have a moral reason to reject the accounts. They don't want to be accountable to God. They don't want the events to be true because if those events are true, if Jesus is alive, if Jesus raised from the dead, if Jesus went to the cross, then we're sinners in desperate need of a God 
to come and save us. And people don't want to admit that I need God or that I need anyone else. And especially in American culture, we are do-it-ourselves people. This, this just gets in our face about everything that, that we believe here in America. But I want you to think about it. Why would we trust modern agnostic and atheist scholars writing to disprove the New Testament more than we would trust the eyewitness testimony of men who wrote within years of Jesus' death and who died for the truth of his resurrection and his teaching? Why are the new atheists today more credible than historic writers who were there when the events happened? If you were a discerning person, let's say you don't even believe in all of this, which would you lean towards? We're in 2016. What do the atheists and agnostics historians have to say? There is an agenda beneath, and it's a moral agenda. It's not a historical one. It's not an archaeological one. It's not an anthropological one or a scientific one. It's a moral one. Apologetic number 10. Actual events of history will always be disputed by some people because history is a non-repeatable event and it's often distanced from us. You know there are people that doubt the Holocaust. How do you even talk to people like that? You know, what do you even say? I just, I don't have time for you. I, I, I mean... We can't use the scientific method on history. Instead, we use dates. We use origins, authorship, analysis, integrity of manuscripts, credibility, eyewitness testimony, outside sources, and things like that. Matthew, Peter, James, they were all murdered. Friends, murdered because they believed that Jesus was still alive They saw him alive. And I want you just to make a a thought connection there. If they knew he wasn't really alive, why would they die for it? Like, no, he's dead. I saw it. I'm not dying for it. Like, I might die for his truth because I I believed in what he taught, but he's still dead. No, they died for the resurrection because they saw him alive. So they wanted to give his life for his teaching because anybody who can come back from the dead like that and call it his own shot, wow, he's God. Why would modern atheists know any better? I've given you some things to think about this morning, I hope, and, and hopefully I have helped you do two things. Hopefully, I've given you some points from John 18 that have strengthened your faith in the testimony of John. Okay, and secondly, hopefully I've given you a few points that you can use, practical points, to better defend the Christian faith with people who don't yet believe to have a defense, something to say. Even if it's simple as, have you thought about their eyewitness testimonies? They knew Jesus, and that's historically validated even outside of the Bible. Just that one alone. So our goal in studying John is to find in Jesus our greatest joy and pleasure above all things to the glory and worship of God. But it's also to be equipped to lead others to find their greatest joy and pleasure in Jesus Christ above all things to the glory and worship of God. John is giving you, dear brother and sister, concrete evidence to use in winning your friends, in winning your family to Christ. Use what you learn here, out there. Carry it with you. Leave thinking. Leave discerning. Think, reason, defend. Be ready to give a good defense to people who don't believe And maybe, just maybe, God will grant 
that your family or your friends will believe because of the good defense that you gave. Leave with this thought in your mind. Have something to say. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. You give us tons of evidence, and yet our heart is so hard. We have problems believing because we're sinners. It's a moral thing. It's not an evidence thing. There's plenty of evidence to convince everybody. But sin is so strong, and it keeps us from believing. And we know that our friends are just lost in sin, and they can't see your glory, God. And we know that the only reason we've seen it is because of your sovereign grace, that you've opened up the truth for us. And so, God, I pray that you will help just maybe one point from this morning, one apologetic point, to deeply root itself in the people of Jerusalem Church, that they would be just a little bit more equipped to defend the Christian faith with those who doubt it. God, help our people to realize here at Jerusalem, all of us together as a family, to recognize that there is good evidence. It's not a blind leap. There are credible testimonies that we can read that validate who Jesus was and what he did. And so, God, Christianity is an intellectual thing, but it's also an emotional thing and a spiritual thing and a God's grace thing. And I pray that you do your work in us. And I pray now that as we go into uh, these ending worship songs, that we would be so captivated by the truth that we would let it pour out in praise and thanksgiving to you. We love you, God. Thank you for proving yourself to us through Christ. Amen.